Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I'm joined again by Professor John Marini for the second part of our long series on John Ford's westerns. Our first talk was about The Searchers, a movie fundamental to understanding the law of the family, the most rudimentary, the most important in that sense, part of our self-understanding of our politics, of ourselves and our communities. And today we're turning, of course, to The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, the greatest of the Ford Westerns, the one that deals most clearly and at greatest depth with the question of political foundation, beyond the law of the family to the law of the city and to America in a way that is easier to recognize with towns and commerce and the press and violence, including questions of family and education and what the future of the country requires. Sir, thank you for joining me again. You've taught this movie and talked about it longer perhaps than I've been alive. So <laughs> I, uh, just please introduce yourself for our audience. They may not be familiar with your work. And let's get to our movie. Yeah, my name is John Marini. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Nevada, a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Primarily, I teach political theory, but every once in a while I wander into film, partly to help teach to elucidate some of the questions that arise in political thought. Sometimes that's done well in the movies. And I also, for a long period of time, I've written on this phenomenon called the administrative state, but mostly I'm a political theorist. So It's a pleasure to have you, and our audience should go look up Claremont Review of Books. Your essays are there, elucidating the problems we have with even understanding, much less doing something about rule, arrangements, order, administration, getting out of any kind of scrutiny or political control, and in effect putting an end to self-government. Sir, you have shown me this movie as part of the Publius Fellowship at the Claremont Institute with the rest of the fellows, and you gave us a talk about it. I don't know anybody who knows the movie quite as well as you do, so I thought I'd start with something that struck me which hadn't occurred to me before you mentioned it in our conversation then. You emphasized how important the woman, played by Vera Miles, is in the movie, how instrumental she is to understanding America and the political future. She is part of a love triangle. On the one hand, there's John Wayne, playing Tom Donifan, a truly manly man. And on the other hand, there is the lawyer, who is a nobleman, Rand Stoddard, played by the great Jimmy Stewart. And the woman has to choose between these two ways, and her choices have this strange influence, the destiny of a state, it seems. Statehood in Arizona is in question, of course, in the movie. So let's start and talk from this point of view. Well, the woman, for Ford, I think, is the beginning that's the fundamental foundation of community. So how the woman is understood and what her role is and how she chooses, of course, becomes very important in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And her name, Hallie, means defender of the hearth or home. So in a way, this is about how do you establish the conditions whereby the home, the house, becomes an important part of a community. Hallie's choice, of course, you can see the way she shaped how the others responded to her. Now, one can see in Tom Donovan, the John Wayne character, that his view in his life was a wholly private life. He simply wanted to create a home for his girl, Hallie. Everybody knew that was his girl. And, of course, because he was a private man, he had no concern for the political, really. He was capable of being self-sufficient, independent, 
because in some ways he was outside of the political community. All you have to do is think about Aristotle's definition in the politics that describes the two characters in this movie that remain outside of the political. He says, one who is incapable of participating or is in need of nothing through being self-sufficient is no part of a city, and so is either a beast or a god. Liberty Valance, who is the beast and who remains outside the political community because he is incapable of becoming a part of it. And on the other side, you have the god, Tom Donovan, who has no need for the political community because he is self-sufficient. In other words, he is the naturally superior man. He is the aristocracy. And he's understood as that. It's not accidental that John Ford names his boy, or you could almost say his slave, Pompey. Pompey was the last defender of the aristocracy in Rome. And of course, what that means is that Pompey never understood the principle of equality. He always thought of Donovan as the superior man. Not that he was servile or subordinate. He was a noble man in many ways. And you can see that in the course of the movie. But he never understood the principle of equality. You could see that in that famous scene in the classroom where he tries to comment on the Constitution and the Declaration. But here you have these two figures that are outside the political community on the one hand. And then you have Jimmy Stewart. Ransom Stoddard, who comes to town, offers up wholly new possibilities to Halley. Possibilities that were completely unforeseen in the way of life she would have had had she chosen Tom Donovan. Because Halley would have been a wife, and she would have been in many ways completely dependent upon the self-sufficient man. Not even a political community or the law to support her, or all of those other forces that become a part of a community, such things as education, such things as the rule of law. All of these things are not quite yet in place. So Ransom Stoddard, who comes to Shinbone from the east, having graduated from a law school, comes out to a territory where you could say his clerkship <laughs> is in the state of nature. That's what this is about how it is that the law becomes established. The woman is important because, in a way, her choice is going to determine, really, the outcome of the movie in terms of what actually happens, but not necessarily in terms of what is beneficial in terms of personal happiness. I think there's two symbols in this movie that you have to understand to understand what Ford is doing. The railroad, which is, in a way, the coming of history, establishes the idea of progress and constant kind of adaptation to change. And the other symbol is the cactus flower, the eternal, the things that don't change. And that becomes very evident right at the very start of the movie. When they get off the train, the senator and his wife, Hallie, the old marshal picks them up and he's showing her the, them, the transformations that have occurred in the town. And there's schools now and there's all kinds of changes and she wants to take a ride while her husband goes and talks politics. And he knows where she wants to go. She wants to go to the desert and this home of Tom Donovan because that's where the most beautiful cactus flowers were. And of course, what he says about it, he's giving her a catalog of all the changes. Then he says, the desert, it's still the same. And of course, when they get to Donovan's cabin there, which is burned out, there's this beautiful cactus rose and he picks it for her. The cactus rose is the symbol of nature, the things that are unchanging. 
man does not need to be present for that to blossom. Unlike a real rose, which requires some cultivation, the cactus rose is a wild rose. It grows without man, but it's beautiful in a certain way. And of course, one can see that in the way in which she thinks of the cactus rose, and that's in terms of nature. That's in terms of the things that are unchanging. And that's also the meaning of love. Love, of course, is eternal. But with James Stewart character, with Ransom Stoddard, of course, when she's brought a beautiful cactus rose by Donovan and she has Pompey planted in the back, Ransom Stoddard asks her, do you ever see a real rose? In other words, he was offering her a wholly different world, a world that is already cultivated and civilized in certain ways and establish, of course, a kind of order that is so different from that order that arises in that setting that was pretty much natural in the sense that it did not have yet any form of authority outside of simple natural force. Force ruled in that early shinbone, but in a certain way, one could see that there was some pleasantness. There was a joy of existence in early Shinbone, in the way that people related to one another. And when Ford was asked once to talk about why he filmed The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and he said, hey, I like the story, he said it was about two simple people in a kitchen. And what he's talking about is the home. That's the hearth. You notice how much took place in that kitchen in the early Shinbone. And by the way, that story, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, comes out of a short story that was written by Dorothy Johnson, who was a Western writer. She also wrote a couple other famous movies, A Man Called Horse and The Hanging Tree, yep. that Gary Cooper movie. But this was a very short story in the Saturday Evening Post, I think. And Ford saw the possibilities for this very quickly. And he changed all the names. The title is the same, but all the names of the characters are changed. And in keeping the name Liberty Valance, he signals the central conflict. But who was Liberty Valance? And Liberty Valance, of course, is in many ways the freest man yes. in the original Shinbone, but he's a tyrant. Yes. So he obscures what freedom really means. I think people in that older generation would know what a valance was. Over yes. a window, you know, the thing that hides the rods of the curtains at the top. So in a way, what Liberty Valance's name shows, this is something that obscures what freedom really is. Because that is a freedom of will. His will and force dominated him. That was not the kind of freedom that's possible and becomes necessary in a political community. That presupposes, of course, understanding the idea of equality as corollary of liberty. And neither Donovan or liberty understood equality, because they understood this in terms of will or force. And that's how they imposed order. Donovan's use of will was on behalf of a good, because he was a good man. And liberty's use of force was on behalf of evil or at least the use yeah. of force simply for the use of force on behalf of those who had the ability to enforce their will. Both Donovan and Liberty really have to be banished before the civil order that is institutionalized with the rule of law when James Stewart, in a way, becomes victorious by winning the hand of the late. So it's a very complicated story because the hero of the movie is, of course, the man who shot Liberty Valance. But it's very unclear who shot Liberty Valance throughout almost the whole of the movie. 
even when you get that final retrospective, when Donovan S. Rand started to think back, you realize that he didn't shoot Liberty Valance. Donovan did, and he did it really, and again, for a private motive, because he wanted to make Hallie happy. And he tells him, you know, you taught her how to read and write, now give her something to read and write about. That's what made Rand Stoddard, of course, go back in and accept the nomination and then become this successful senator, ambassador, governor, all of the things that he succeeded in becoming. So John Ford is looking both at the political achievement of civilization, of statehood and of the American Union by extension, and also at the pre-political psychology that underlies politics and our common lives, and which seems in some way to continue even without our realizing it quite. It's only really obvious in these moments when it turns out that the moment of political founding had less to do with justice and more to do with love. And you could say in platonic terms that Ford is suggesting that eros is more important than spiritedness even at the foundation of the laws. An otherwise bloody moment, violence, risking of lives, or honor would seem to be more important than anything else really. Even Ransom Stoddard, who stands by a principle of law, of justice, part of which of course is that no man is to be judged in his own case. Even he picks up a gun and heads off to risk his life for a matter of honor because he doesn't see any other way to effectively relate to the people of Shinbone given the threats they live with. But this would not have sufficed and Randstoddard would have been murdered in cold blood by Liberty Valens. In fact, cold blood is not a good phrase for it. He's excited about what he's doing and drunk. That's barbarism, the beast you mentioned before. And that's on display for everyone to see in the streets. What's hidden, however, is Tom Donovan's love for Hallie, which leads him to kill in the dark, shooting in the back. No honor or claim to manly contest and fair fight there. So the woman is the linchpin of civilization, connecting nature and history, and connecting man and citizen. Before the railroad and the industrial power of civilization and the life of commerce, there's the stagecoach, much more dangerous and less comfortable, and it, however, brings the rule of law, but it takes the choice of a woman and the importance of woman's love to make that stick, to give law a chance. So perhaps the strangest single suggestion in the love triangle and the mystery of who killed Liberty Valance has to do with the possibility that Eros is somehow more natural than his spiritedness. It is the people who believe Ransom Stoddard deserves honor above all because of his honorable achievement, but some few secretly know that it was not him that did the deed, in short that it was not honor that did the deed. And that connects very well with Ford's insistence throughout his westerns, the importance of women for civilization. I think what you see in this movie with Ford is, it is a retrospective, not just of the western, but of his own role in creating how the western was understood. Because Ford did not understand history in a progressive fashion. He knew that every change that occurs, whatever good it has, also results in some loss. And he's always wondering about what is lost in these transformations when we get something new. The new shin bone, in many ways, seems less interesting than the old shin bone. You've got a new newspaper editor, and you've got a phone now, and you've got all of these things that progress has bought. 
but it's a town that doesn't have the same kind of community that necessity had imposed earlier. The way in which the movie is presented, the train comes into Shinbone. The senator grants and his wife get off, and Ford tells this story, and he tells it in black and white. This is 1962. Films have long been going to color, but Ford insisted on this, and he has said that he wanted it, in a way, to appear almost as a silent movie. Ford always insisted he liked silent movies better. He thought it was harder to make silent movies because you didn't have words. When asked about that, he says, well, people expect words now. So, <laughs> of course, he uses them. But not only does he use the same people insofar as he can within the possibilities, you know, of Hollywood, every actor in there that was still alive that was part of his company was in that movie. I mean, people like Ward Bond were dead. But Andy Devine, who was still alive, played the role in Liberty Valance very similar to his role in Stagecoach, down to the Mexican wife and family and his cowardice. And the Stagecoach itself, which he drove in the original, is seen in Liberty Valance. Then there's the eloquent drunkard. Thomas Mitchell played him in Stagecoach and got an Oscar for it, but he was dead and instead Edmund O'Brien did the same role as Dutton Peabody, the editor, in Liberty Valance. So there are as many parallels to Stagecoach as Ford could draw. He was trying to rehearse the beginnings of the Western as an art form in his final Western. If you go back to the Western that introduced John Wayne, Stagecoach in 39, and all the Westerns that came in between, Ford had given his audience a view of what America and the West looked like from a poetic point of view. How it is that the past could be understood in a decent way, in an honorable way, in a way that was edifying. You could see that it was kind of nostalgia, and I don't think it's accurate to say that Ford had become more disillusioned as, you know, Peter Bogdanovich asked him that question when he's interviewing him, and Ford said, I don't know what you're talking about. Ford is presenting, I think, what he sees, and he sees the earliest time is usually the best and the healthiest time. He's more optimistic about things in their origins, in their beginnings. And in time, of course, they ossify. And I think he's just revealing some of the transformation that actually takes place. The West in America was a very brief period. Some of the people that are the legends of the West were alive and talked to John Ford. Wyatt Earp yep. uh, actually talked to John Ford. So this window was very brief. The real question was, how is that past going to be understood? And Ford, I think, understood the importance of creating a heroic path, of making it consonant with the fundamental virtues. And of course, the Western did that in a way in which probably no other genre could, as we talked last week about the searchers. Ford was well aware of the corruption of Western civilization, even by the end of World War II of how hard it was going to be to sustain and teach the virtues that had made human beings free over a long period of time. And Ford decided to become a teacher of these virtues because he noticed they were becoming rare, especially as prosperity and comfort and orderly lives replaced the hardship of previous ages. And, of course, most importantly, which Ford never wanted to get into in an intellectual way, the degradation of thought. But when you think of Ford's movies, they're always very simple questions, but they're always the most important Socratic questions. What kind of town is this? 
what kind of man are you? <laughs> uh, in uh, My Darling Clementine, when Doc yeah. Holliday says to Clementine, uh, you're not that kind of a person, she says, what kind of a person am I? Those are all questions that he's giving you answers to in the form of the movies. And in and, Liberty Valance, Ransom Stoddard says, what yeah, kind of, of place yeah, have I come kind, to? Right. And he also says, when they rob him, what kind of man are you? And then when Liberty Valance beats him, he says, this kind of man, dude. <laughs> yep. I mean, you know, that's force. Yep. This is Western justice. And that's what the Western does for America. It allows the retrieval of fundamental questions of character. And right. pointed out the inquiry into what is permanent. So that people right. are not swept up in events and they are not forever dominated by the news. That they have right. a kind of escape from that. And the grandeur, the heroism of the Western also does that. You can see it too when Stoddard realizes when he's talking to Donovan there, when he's saying he doesn't want to kill Liberty Valance, but he wants to put him in jail. And Donovan says to him, out here, the law comes from you. And that's when Stoddard says, you know what you're saying? You're saying what he said. So what kind of community have I come to? That's yep. force. That's the community established by force. It's amazing how many important parts of that movie are just in what Ford said. Eh, it's two simple people in a kitchen. Ford knew the importance of making a movie on many levels. First level, though, it has to be entertaining, too. And, yep. of course, some of the questions that arise there are questions that do arise in a simple way and are important questions. The question, of course, of love. Yes, so we've considered the situation before the emergence of the rule of law and tried to figure out the essential conflicts and the meaning of the choices available to people. But we should also look at what happens after the rule of law is installed and how things turn out for human beings, both in light of their hopes and in light of their nature. Being that the movie has a complete picture of the transition, the ending should help reveal character. You see most clearly the character of Ransom Stoddard and the despair, really, at the very end of the movie. That train makes a circle and is heading out of town. He asks... Who put the cactus flower on Tom's coffin? Of course, she said, I did. And there, he, I think he realizes, she knows the importance of what he did for that place. She says, this was once a wilderness and now it's a garden. Aren't you proud? You can see he doesn't seem proud. It seems like that hit him in a way that makes it clear that despite what he had given what he had done for the community. We're left with the assumption that although she's the defender of the hearth and home, personally she's barren, just as the desert was in terms of children. Yes, they uh, never and have so any kids. He's the father of his country, like George Washington, <laughs> yes. who had no children. He fathered that, but still, the question, you know, when I teach this in the Publius program, <laughs> I often ask the students, who do they think that Halley really loved? Some of the students think she really loved Ransom, but I guess a greater number probably think that she loved Tom Donovan. Ford was not very forthcoming in answering questions about a movie, but he did answer that. He did say, well, it's obvious that she loved Tom Donovan. Yeah. And I think it is obvious, but he's a subtle filmmaker, and that's why it isn't so obvious. And that's yeah. why it's a better film. Yeah, so the love story starts in this state of nature before civilization, convention, and that is also somehow tied up with childhood. 
certain strong passions, certain strong ideas take root and these people live a way of life where things can take root and then it turns out they stay there for life, that they yeah. are as close as anything human comes to the eternity of things like the desert. And that has something to do, of course, with what the desert flower is, what the cactus rose is. Mm. There are things that even in this harshest of environments thrive. Yeah. A little and beauty in so much adversity is a testament yeah. of great nobility, of great strength. And yeah. that's what Tom Donifan is. Tom Donifan and Liberty Valance are alike in everything except two ways. One of them is that Tom Donifan has an estate. He is a lord. He is a master. And the other one is that Tom Donifan can control himself, whereas yeah. Liberty Valance has to be controlled by his cronies. And yeah. sometimes they have to pull him off people so that he won't yeah. turn murderer. And yeah. there is a lesson about the state of nature. Somebody like Tom Donifan can control himself even without law holding him back or fear. Whereas no, there are he... others who can't control themselves except by fear. And yeah. of course, that will not change with the arrival of law. Fear no. will change in certain ways, but it will not make everybody able to control himself. Right. In Aristotle, if you could find a man who is the naturally best man, you would allow that person to rule because he's just. But it's very clear. Tom Donovan doesn't want to rule. He could have had that nomination, right? Yes. He could have been. Him, he refuses it. Yeah, no, of course. Everybody in that town knew, including Liberty Valley that Donovan was the naturally superior man and that had all of the virtues really essential to constituting what that goodness was. And that's why when Aristotle talking about beast and a god, that's a kind of a godly man. You don't find many men like that. Yes. Uh, and that's why it's not a stable thing to establish an order on a man because his own children might not be like him. Yep. And in the new society formed after the installation of the rule of law, there's no real room left for Tom Donifan. In a way, he's trying to embody the self-sufficiency that everybody else turns to community for. And it seems he patterns himself on that hope for self-sufficiency, and he goes too far in his own tragic direction, which leads to his own self-destruction, paradoxically by doing the right thing, by saving the town and saving Halley's intended, as he thinks, ransom stoddard, and thus making a life possible for everybody but himself. He hoped to make a life with Halley clearly aloof from the community as though he were a king, but even kingship would be a form of rule and he doesn't want to rule. And on the other hand, kingship doesn't belong in America. And so he gets privacy, which is what he wanted, but in the way he didn't want it, he's absolutely forgotten. But by Ransom Stoddard and Halley. So it seems that the arrival of the rule of law in Shinbone is really a tragedy, not just for Liberty Valance, but for Tom Donifan. By the end of the drama, he has lost everything. It's very clear that when Ford is establishing some of the memories, because he brings in things from some of his earlier movies. When you watch the first scene, that very important scene where they go down to Tom Donovan's cabin there that's burned out, and he picks her that cactus rose, there's a theme that's playing. That was a theme, if you're familiar with the young Mr. Lincoln. That was yeah. the Ann Rutledge theme. You're right. Ford liked that theme so much that he actually bought it from Alfred Newman, I believe, was the guy who wrote the music score for that. And Ford owned that theme. And so when you see that theme being played in the movie, it's played in several places. It's always something very important. Love, 
and you have to go through and just see. It's probably played three or four times at the most. For him, that Ann Rutledge theme is a crucial part of that young Mr. Lincoln movie, too. It's a These are all... theme, and it's also perfectly fitting because it's about the doomed love of a great man. Right, and as I said, I think Ford was reminiscing not only personally in how he partook in creating this poetry of the West for his audience, who came to, I think, understand and have an attachment to their country that they might not have had without these things. And this goes over like a 40, 50 year period Ford's career in movies. Yeah. And all of these characters are very important. And the Westerns are fundamental for the reasons that I talked about when we talked about the searchers, about Ford's great pessimism at the end of World War II and many of the others who were in Hollywood at that time. When Ford made a movie, uh, This is Korea, I don't know if you ever saw that documentary, because he, nope. he made movies about every war in American history, going back to the revolution. And his last one was a documentary about Vietnam. But when he made This is Korea, he was summoned to Japan. He was in Korea, and MacArthur asked him if he would go over and visit. Of course, Ford went over, and MacArthur said to him, you know, you are my favorite filmmaker. Your Westerns are exactly right. He said, I grew up on one of those Western outposts when my father was stationed out there after the Civil War. That is exactly what the life was like out there. That's remarkable. I did not know that story. It was clear when Ford got his Medal of Freedom from Nixon that Nixon had the same view of Ford. They all understood the importance of that understanding of how to make the good of the past resonate and how to make it something that people can understand and take some pride and learn from it. You know, learn the moral lessons. How many of the people that I've talked to over the years that had gone to Vietnam and fought in the wars, after I'd talk about Westerns, were saying they grew up on Westerns. This was their view of the world. This is how they understood it. Ford's Westerns are useful because they require attention to the virtues and the vice. Because when you're on the edge of civilization, when you're on the edge of survival at whatever stage, whether in the beginning or at the end, you can't survive without the virtues. And of course, the extremes of the virtues, as we saw in The Searchers, are sometimes detrimental to community itself. That's why uh, Ethan Edwards was not allowed into the house at the end, even though you needed him to save or to establish the community in the first place. But those passions are too wild at a certain point. Yeah, you're right that although times have changed and tastes have changed, the understanding of human things and of America available to an audience in John Ford Westerns is unsurpassed. Like we were talking about these natural men, Liberty Valance and Tom Donifon, the things that grow in the wildest circumstances. These are clearer views of man than we are usually afforded. The movie, because of them, achieves the double teaching about equality that we get from Aristotle. Equality, in one sense, means we're all the same in front of the law. We yeah. have a certain fundamental similarity, for example, in our mortality. But there's another sense of equality, proportion to merit. Mm. And in that sense, only Liberty Valance and Tom Donifon can show equality because they are the only two daring men. Everyone else is scared. And that reveals something. This other kind of equality that is about what your merit is, it can only be proven by a certain kind of testing. It will not suffice to suppose in advance that a class of people, perhaps including all mankind, are the same. 
achievements, virtues, and of course even the vices have a rarity about them that makes them harder to understand properly and harder to find a place for them, as you were saying, within civil society. Yeah. But they are nevertheless fundamental to understanding character. Just like society is built on yeah. the installation of law by incredibly strange men, so yeah. also it is true of understanding and in certain ways of moral character that yeah. it takes very clear and very rare achievements that we then paper over, that we then forget about. Great achievements are of course connected to great troubles, and we have a natural preference, however, for peace over war and calm over crisis, so we are always drawn, if we're successful, to judge things by a common measure that doesn't work well for exceptions. And I think this is why we need poets to give us a more sophisticated teaching and tell us about things we cannot experience and which we should not want to experience, of course. Yeah, when we look at the way Halley represents the family, Ford also shows the necessity of education and the necessity of law. And it's interesting that the law is established on the word. In the movie, the law and the word are brought together in the newspaper office of Dutton Peabody. And yes. that's where the classroom is. You notice when Jimmy Stewart has on the board, education is the basis of law and order. Those things become necessary, but first of all, when they create the school and ostensibly to teach Halley and then Halley's mother and then the kids of the marshal and then all these folks who come in, including Pompey. Yeah, so they're all first supposed to learn how to read because, as Ransom Stoddard puts it, the best political education is an honest newspaper. It's America. Freedom of the press and freedom of speech are tied up with citizenship. That's where you get the lesson on the meaning of equality and liberty. You could see Ford had, you notice in the back when he's talking about the Constitution and the Declaration, there's two portraits on the wall, one of Washington and, and one, of, one Lincoln. of Lincoln. But what's very clear there, and this is very subtle, and it had to be a knowing subtlety, and it shows, again, Ford's use of ambiguity in a way that shows a higher kind of understanding. First, they learn language. I mean, that's the first thing you have in common, right? So the Mexican kids are learning English. When Nora answers the question of what kind of order is this, what kind of a country is this, you know, she talks about the sovereignty of the people. And then he asked the question, James Stewart, about what is the fundamental law that can oftentimes get amended. And it's very clear he's talking about the Constitution, there's no doubt. But when Pompey tries to answer it, he gets up and he says, it was writ by Mr. Thomas Jefferson. And he says, it begins, we hold these truths. And he forgets the last part, that all men are created equal. But he what you notice... Equality. Right. But you notice Stoddard doesn't correct him and say, well, no, you're talking about the Declaration. He just tells him people sometimes forget the last part of the declaration. That means there's the necessity of these two things together. You can't separate. The Constitution is dependent upon the principles of the declaration. That was something that Pompey did not comprehend, equality. And that's why he couldn't know that the people should rule. And he thought that in a natural order, one would turn to a Tom Donovan, as everybody did anyway, all the time, right? Yes. Every time Hallie got into trouble, or any time she needed help, who did she call for? Every time, Tom Donovan. So, of course, with another key element of the transformation of the way in which the naturally superior Tom Donovan, after he loses Hallie, in his own mind, he thinks she loves Ransom Stoddard, and he goes and gets drunk. 
you could see that his whole understanding of that order is collapsed because in the bar there, when Pompey comes up to get him, he offers Pompey a drink. In other words, they're equals now in a certain way. And even the bartender conventionally says, you know, we, we can't offer him. But what shows the nobility of Pompey is he says, you know, I don't drink. He's still a man of order and character and knew that he had to get out there and get back to work. Of course, we should also say while we're talking about education that outside of Ransom Stoddard, the only two other people who can read are, of course, the editor, Dutton Peabody, and Tom Donifon himself, and perhaps Liberty Valance. Peabody and Donifon are good friends and talk as equals, and Peabody even tries to enlist Donifon in a certain sense in the city by printing a marriage announcement his marriage to Halley, of course. But Donifan says, don't rush me. He wants to keep his privacy. And on the other hand, Liberty Valance attacks Peabody for publishing unpleasant truths about him. But they do have very different opinions about how rules should be organized or what the use is of education, for example, for reading. Peabody is for law out of conviction and Liberty Valance is against it out of conviction. Donifan is in between and eventually decides to help the cause of justice, apparently for selfish reasons. He just wants Ransom Stoddard to go mind his business in politics and leave him and Shinbone to their own devices. So this is a very interesting juxtaposition of actions and opinions among men who have certain similar powers that separate them from everybody else. So all of these are just ways in which the movie seems at every juncture, wherever Ford makes the decision as to how to portray this, I think he makes the right choice to show what it is that he's trying to show. Yeah, it is, of course, very helpful to audiences and is also revealing in the author of a mastery of detail that is at the same time a mastery of structure. He gets the big yeah. things right, he gets the small things to fit with the big things. Too. In a way, it reminds you in the way it, it's a completed whole, almost like Stagecoach. A very different way of looking at these problems in Stagecoach, but you can see in Stagecoach, it too is a perfect unit in the way everything reveals itself in that movie. Well, we'll have uh, to talk about that one next. It's worth <laughs> a discussion because it deals with the same themes of love, violence, and law, but arranges them in a very different way. Now, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is unique because unlike Stagecoach and the other Westerns, it includes Ford's teaching on the relationship between poetry and history, and therefore the mission of the poet in America. What Ford understood his art to be in terms of the relationship of a factual reality to a poetic reality and that's in the way in which that newspaper man decides at the end not to print the story that he learns from Brant Stoddard about what happened in this early days before history he says well you only understand Shinbone after the railroad got here but that means he didn't understand it in a non-historical way the way that Ford is trying to portray how you understand the past is not through the particulars, as history does, as Aristotle points out, but through the way in which poetry expresses the universe. In a way, you could already see that it wouldn't make sense to express what happened in that movie in terms of particulars. Because when the newspaper man badgers the senator to talk about, why did you come to this town? There's no place in a certain way. And he says, well, I came for a funeral of a friend. And he tells him his name. And he says, well, you can't just say Tom Donovan. Who is Tom Donovan? 
That's the particular. Would anyone else at that time know anything other than that as a particular that would have no meaning? What Ford does in the movie, when he says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend, he shows both the fact and the legend. And he reveals it in a much more universal way than would be if you simply tried to... All my students complain that, well, it's as if Ford is creating some kind of lie or something. There's no real lie here. There's no lie here at all. There, this is a way of elucidating a universal reality that goes beyond the particulars that history can reveal and makes that phenomenon intelligible for many generations, not just the ones that live through it. If the newspaper man didn't know who Tom Donovan was, if he suddenly printed that, what good would it have done except to destroy the character of Ransom Stoddard? Well, Ransom Stoddard doesn't deserve his, and yet it's very clear he deserved everything he got. Yes. And the very final line of that movie still shows you the power of the legend. The conductor's last line, nothing's too good for the man who shot Liberty Val. That's yeah. the way poetry is much superior. But that requires an artist, yes. just like a philosopher is required to elucidate the yeah. ideas. And uh, unfortunately, even artists are in certain ways confused about this. I remember in an interview Peter Bogdanovich saying that he thought it was very clever on Ford's part that he said you print the legend implying that you hide the facts, but in yeah. fact he didn't print the legend, he revealed the facts. And yeah. it is a kind of cleverness to say it's not a beautiful light, the ugly truth you should pay attention to. <laughs> it's not enough to reveal Ford's intention and to realize the relationship between the two as you said it. Ransom actually did deserve what he got. Of course he did. He yes, did of course he did. He did change everything everything he did and Hallie recognized that too she says this was a wilderness and now it's a garden you did it yeah and of course Ford reveals that in certain ways the free press is just not sufficient the journalists of the shinbone star in this new age insist on the people's right to know so that they interviewed the senator and uh, ransom stoddard eventually allows them to question him but it quickly becomes obvious that they're just not adequate to the task they're not there to find out something on behalf of the people they're supposed to learn something that they didn't know before so that they can better do their job in future they need to understand themselves their own community first of all so halfway through the movie in the education sequence ransom stoddard does say that the best political education is a good newspaper but now it turns out he has to give a political education to a newspaper this is somewhat strange but it is revealing about ford's opinions about america and it shouldn't be so surprising because it's part of american character that people forget the past yeah of course. well we all history. do look at look at lincoln's address there in 1837 he's talking about people who live through that they're not the yep. memory of that is going it's yes. going to have to be recreated in another way the passion the emotion the way in which they experienced it that's not going to live forever how do yep. you bring that back? And for Lincoln, of course, it's reason. Yes. But for a poet, it's a poetry that transcends the historical account, if you are that kind of poet. No, <laughs> when you think about the, the movie itself, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance was completely done on a soundstage, too. Yep. You know, Ford had made the land a part of his movies in Stagecoach or in Searchers or in the Cavalry Trilogy. And those are important parts. Ford really understood the importance of the land. And he often said, you know, when he decided to make his first movie after the war, he went to Monument Valley to make uh, My Darling Clementine. And he said that his favorite location is Monument Valley. 
It has rivers, mountains, plains, desert, everything the land can offer. I feel at peace there. I have been all over the world, but I consider this the most complete, beautiful, and peaceful place on earth. And in a way, he was deprived of that because he was getting, he wasn't in that great a health in these last years. And doing that movie in black and white, even his cameraman thought that they should do it in color, but Ford knew it had to be in black and white. Eventually, the cameraman agreed, too, that it probably should have been. That land, too, is an important part of the way in which Ford establishes a connection between a people and a place. Now, in Liberty Valance, if you think about how he thought of that in that very simple way of the kitchen, it makes sense. You didn't need that. That was a kind of a silent movie with dialogue. But the dialogue, the script was very good. And when students, when you show that to people, people are amazed at how little violence there is. And that's true of most of Ford's movies. The actual violence is very rarely even on screen. It's assumed violence. When uh, Liberty flogs Rance Stoddard, you see his arm going up and down. You don't see it. He doesn't show the violence. Somebody gets killed. You don't see the blood the way Peckinpah subsequently did. You get the sense that Ford actually was teaching lessons. This guy's a storyteller like Homer, he said, Walter Hill. Yeah, Homer's about right. John Ford was the poet of heroism and of the world after individualistic heroism in the state of nature. And Walter Hill would know, as a man who learned from John Ford and tried to translate that sort of story to the city. And there is indeed so much to learn from John Ford about poetry, about drama, about how to stage events and actions so that they speak to some greater truth. The characters are typical they're supposed to teach you certain things about character in a way that really only poetry can do it. You need a plot, you need certain clarities, you need information that life just does not supply. You need to be in a situation where you can plan even the accidents so that they are revealing yeah. rather than obscuring the important things. And you need to have a sense for strange possibilities. Uh -huh. We started with the girl, Hallie. She's somehow tied up because of love to eternal yeah. verities, like the cactus rose. And on the other hand, she's the bringer of progress. And mm -hmm. that says a lot about the changing role or the complex role women play in America. And yeah. of course, it was true in John Ford's time, but it was true in the time depicted in the Western as well. It's true about the character of America. There is also mm -hmm. this other aspect, like you pointed out, education. And this entire complex, really, of the press, education, and the fundamental law of America, the Declaration, which in this movie are serendipitously a planned accident, they are put together. Mm. Well, they really are together in people's minds, they just don't always see it themselves. Uh -huh. It's up to the poet to reveal this complex unity. No, and I think one of the more serious quotes that I've read from Ford, where he seemed to be serious about actually answering a question, he did an interview with Andrew Saras in 1955, and he was talking about the theme of a small group thrust by chance into dramatic or tragic kinds of circumstances. I think probably Saras was asking him about the Westerns and the, all these communities endangered. Here's what Ford said. It enables me to make individuals aware of each other by bringing them face to face with something bigger than themselves. A situation, a tragic moment, forces men to reveal themselves and to become exactly. aware of what they truly are. The device allows me to find the exceptional in the commonplace. That was a yep. good quote of his. And in a way, you can see it in the people he admires. Abraham Lincoln, the most uncommon common man. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I think Ward is extraordinary in terms of his art. And I know he was a contentious guy, a hard guy to get along with and uh, uh-huh. taskmaster and all that. But that's the price you pay sometimes for yes. his genius. Yes, uh, it is. Well, sir, I think we can conclude this recording here. And if next week you'd like to go to Stagecoach, I'd love to do that. All right. Yeah. Or, you know, my darling Clementine's another one I like. Oh, I fully intend on doing that as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll uh, play it by ear, I guess. Thanks a lot, sir. All the best until our next conversation. Be it Stagecoach or my darling Clementine, we'll be talking more John Ford Westerns. All right. Thanks, Titus. And thank you, sir. Okay.